Thanks, Tim. Uh, you never know what Tim's going to say, so I wasn't sure exactly what to expect. Um, you know, uh, so far this morning, I look around and worship and baptism and testimony of what's going on um, through the ministry of this church throughout the world, and I'm thinking that I'm pretty much not needed up here right now. Um, it's pretty amazing to see uh, exactly what's happened. And uh, when Tim and I were kind of emailing back and forth about this morning, um, he told me there's a lot of things going on this morning and you're going to have about 30 minutes. And uh, I thought about emailing him back. You've never done a 30-minute sermon in your life. What are you talking about? Um, um, but I see that there's a little bit more time than that, so I'm okay. T-minus, according to the clock back there, 13 hours to the new year. Have you made your resolutions yet? I've got to admit I haven't made a single one, uh, which for the purposes of this illustration is a little bit problematic. Uh, but I didn't think about making them, though. And I wondered, why do we make resolutions? So I did what anyone would do when they're preparing for a sermon. Don't know the answer. I Googled it. So here's the thing. New Year's resolutions aren't new. Not new at all. In fact, they're ancient. Uh, I mean, you know, and you've got to trust what's on the Internet, because if it's on the Internet, it's true, right? Um, and the fact that several of the sites had almost exactly the same wording is not a problem, I don't think. They may have copied from each other, I don't know. But as far as we can tell, as near as we can tell, the Babylonians, 2,000 years before Christ, started the tradition of New Year's resolutions. Their New Year's was March 23rd. Then the Romans came along and they adapted the idea of New Year's resolutions, changed the date to March 25th, I'm not quite sure why, until about 153 B.C. And then the Roman Senate decided January 1's the day. And they continued to give resolutions at this time. The date didn't stick until for about 100 years, until Julius Caesar. And at this time, they tended to give gifts to one another and to forgive those that were their enemies. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you at all. Think back a week. So that's your free history lesson for the day. But as I looked at these resolutions, I decided to think, okay, what are the, I tried to find out what are the top ten resolutions today. And it turns out that it wasn't exactly easy to find, but... Pretty much, they're the same across the board, no matter who we are in our culture. Here's a list that I found. Number one, lose weight. Number two, stop smoking. Number three, stick to a budget. Number four, save more money. Number five, find a better job. Number six, become more organized. Number seven, exercise more. Number eight, be more patient at work or with others. Number nine, eat better. Number 10, become a better person. I find it a bit odd that you've got to wait till number 10 to get to become a better person. Are we a narcissistic culture or what? It's a little bit unbelievable. You know, I was looking through this and I recently was listening to a CD from a Catalyst conference that happened this past fall. And there's this guy, Marcus Buckingham. He wrote a book called Now Discover Your Strengths. He talks a lot about business things and, and things. But as you look at this list, it's about all the stuff we're not good at. And what he talks about in this 
when he was speaking, was that we have this really strange idea. And he talked in specifically about management and employees and things, but I think it applies here. This idea that if we want to be better, we find the things that we're weak at. If you want to be good, you find the things that are bad. You study the things that are bad, and if you study those, and you invert the things that are bad, you come out with good. The problem is we're wrong. If you study bad and invert it, you get not bad. It was much funnier with him because he's British and the accent works better. You get not bad. You don't get good. You get not bad. All of this stuff, all these resolutions, at first glance they say a lot about who we would like to be. But if you delve a little bit deeper, they actually tell us a lot about who we really are. I think it's no coincidence that the New Year, and history aside, and New Year's resolutions come so close on the heels of basically a month-long holiday celebration from Thanksgiving to Christmas. We spend a lot of time with family, with friends, with other assorted people, and we pretend a lot. We put on masks. We do the right thing. We say the right things. We are the right person in front of those people. I think there's a connection between these resolutions and the holidays. I think that resolutions are often based on what we see in the mirror and don't like. I don't think we do it consciously. I don't think we think about this uh, on purpose, about the self that we've projected over the past month and determine that we have to become more or less like that person, I think we do it unconsciously, subliminally. We know something's not quite right. We're not living up to something. We may not like what we see in the mirror. We may feel guilty because we've put on another 10 pounds or because we haven't organized or, well, you fill in the blessing. Maybe we just want something more. We look around at our lives, the stuff we have, the jobs that we have, our house, our friends, maybe at our lowest points, even our spouses, our kids, our parents. And we wonder, is this it? Is this all there is to me? I think resolutions say a lot about who we are. They look at the question, who are you? You know, we just saw... Taylor and Audra and Dan baptized. And that is a huge deal. It is a beautiful thing. I was sitting back there going, man, why do I need to be speaking at all? That says it all. You see, it's a public declaration of who they are in Christ. In today's world, we miss some of the significance because we do it in front of a church building up here. But in the first century world, of the Middle East, of the Near East. It was a little bit different. You see, it was public. And it was pretty common. You were baptized into many different things. It indicated publicly your affiliation with someone or something. In the case of Christianity, it identified you very publicly and potentially very dangerously with the Rabbi Jesus. Think about high school today people that you hang out with, your friends, define in large part who you are, how you're viewed or not viewed. Baptize, baptism signified who you were in a way that we don't always see today. 
So the question, who are you? Seems like a simple enough question. It seems like it would be relatively easy enough to answer. You know, Tim gave you an introduction to me, and I first started coming to Village Bible Church the summer before my senior year in high school. But, you know, the introduction that he gave doesn't tell you a ton about me. You know, the very first time I ever spoke, I ever preached, was in that yellow building that doesn't exist anymore, and I was 18. And uh, Susan Avery, who was the youth pastor's wife, had somehow recruited me to speak for youth night. And I still don't, to this day, know exactly how that happened. Um, You know, I would say that it was because it was me or Tim, but Tim was in junior high, so he wasn't an option at the time. Um, uh, So I still don't know how I got there. And it was actually Tim's dad that came up to me after that service and said, maybe God is calling you to preach. Tim's dad was on my ordination council. John Avery was on my ordination council. John Fernley, former pastor, now missionary of this church. This church has defined who I am in a very real way. Maybe that gives credentials for why I'm standing here, but there's a lot more to me. You know, I think about, as I look back, once you graduate into the real world, you're not defined so much by your friends or your clothes anymore, but by your job. Tell me what you do so I can categorize you. And that's who you are. When I was in junior high, I was wearing camouflage clothes. By the time I was in high school, I was wearing lots of black. um, Lots of black. Big Batman t-shirts and trench coats and scared my mother half to death, I'm sure. I was the kid that everyone's afraid of now. Um, Golfs didn't exist yet, but that's probably where I would have been if I could have been. When I went to college, it changed and... My hair got a lot shorter, and I had to wear ties to college. And I've got to tell you, that's just wrong to have to wear ties to college. And in my opinion, whoever thought up the idea of putting a noose around your neck and calling it fashion has some serious explaining to do. My name tells you a bit about me, O'Brien. I'm Irish. Well, that's sort of true. My family's been in this country for 200 years, more or less, in one form or another, so pretty much I'm an American mutt. I don't have any one group that I can claim as my own. There's a ring on my finger that says I'm a husband. I have pictures of my kids in my wallet that says I'm a father. I wear a Celtic cross. And it fell off, which means it's... That's a problem. Because uh, my wife, ah, I found it. My wife gave me this for my uh, anniversary. And so there's a reason why I wear this. One, because she gave it to me. That's pretty important, you know. But also because I am Irish and because I am uh, a little bit interested in what they did. And the ancient Celts had this symbol, the circle. And it represented life and the interconnectedness of life. When Patrick came along at about the year 500 and the conversion of of the, the Irish to Christianity happened, they introduced the cross into the circle and said, life is only connected in Christ. But you know what? Dress shirts to me are for work. So bear with me for a minute. I don't particularly like them. 
have to wear them. And it's uh, not who I am. I'm a jeans and t-shirt kind of a guy. What? Pedro offers you his protection. For those of you who uh, don't know what I'm, or aren't familiar with Pedro, uh, excuse me a moment here while I get dressed again. I'm really a jeans and t-shirt guy, but I thought that would be going a little bit too far. Besides, I did get permission for that part of it, both from the elders and, more importantly, from my wife. Um, That's much better. So Pedro is one of two main characters in this movie, simultaneously one of the uh, funniest and stupidest movies I've ever seen in my entire life, Napoleon Dynamite. So Pedro and Napoleon are, well, nerds in the extreme. Um, along with Napoleon's brother Kip and their uncle Rico, they kind of are the stars of the show, if you can say there are stars in this movie. I'm not sure that you can. But they're looking for a more fulfilling life. Who they are doesn't quite cut it. I won't go into the details of this movie for two reasons. One, first, those of you who haven't seen the movie really won't catch the flavor of it by me talking about it. So I would suggest if you do want to watch it, try Friday night when you're particularly loopy and probably filled with a room of people around the age of 16. Second, the second reason why I'm not going into the details is because all of those who are 16 have seen it, do get it, and if I start talking about it more, they will be quoting lines from the movie incessantly. The point is that Napoleon and Pedro, like the rest of us, want more than they are in this very campy, silly way. It's a kind of send-up on every 1980s boy and girl movie you've ever seen. See, these guys are willing to go to great lengths to do what it takes. And for those of you who have seen the movie and are wondering, no, I have no moon boots and I will not be dancing at all. You see? Nobody wants to see that. You know, the idea of something more, the idea that my life isn't enough is not new and it's not confined to silly movies like Napoleon Dynamite. It's our entire culture. The books we read, the movies we watch, the shows we watch. The idea of something more, a better life. Think of the huge popularity of Extreme Makeover Home Edition. It's my wife's favorite show. Me, Napoleon Dynamite. My wife, Extreme Makeover. Those guys do great things for a lot of people. They help people out. They do extraordinary things. And they give people a chance that they otherwise wouldn't have, but there's a flaw. There's a huge flaw. Because there's this idea kind of embedded in that show that says, if you fix my house, you'll fix my life. And it's not true. It may make things easier on the surface, but just like Pedro, Pedro becoming class president isn't going to fix his life. Isn't going to get him the girl, isn't going to get him popularity, because it's the external things. It's not inside. And it's the inside that defines who we are. As Christians, who are we? Literally, the term Christians, little Christs. The point is, we belong to Him. This time of the year, we look back 
over the year, we look at ourselves and we say, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it look like to be a Christian? We see a baptism and we are moved by that and we look at our own commitments. The question could be put another way, not just who are you, but what does it mean to be formed spiritually? Because that, after all, is what the question is really about. What does it mean on the inside? And the answer is that it looks like it means it is the same thing as it has always meant. This morning we're looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. This then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. You know, it's a passage that a lot of us have heard before, and sometimes familiarity makes for a distance that we don't realize. So basically, I have one point this morning. No alliteration, no... No three points, no poem, no nothing. One point. And that is, what does it mean to be a true disciple? Or what does it mean to be spiritually formed? What is spiritual formation for everyone? If we really want the something more that we sense is out there somewhere, that we see in the Bible, and we say that the Bible points toward, but generally we feel like we're missing, that I feel like I'm missing, then we've got to be spiritually formed. More specifically, we must be spiritually formed by God. The truth is that we are always already being spiritually formed. Let me say that again. We are always already being spiritually formed. I know that sounds weird, but it's true. Dallas Willard puts it this way. He's a professor of philosophy at USC, and he's written several books that have been uh, very challenging to me and a lot of others, Divine Conspiracy, um, and he's written uh, Renovation of the Heart and a few others this way. Spiritual formation is the process by which the human spirit or will is given a definite form or character. He goes on. It is a process that happens to everyone. The most despicable as well as the most admirable of persons have had a spiritual formation. It's very interesting to me in the last day you've seen a funeral for President Ford and you've seen the execution of Saddam Hussein, two world leaders. Couldn't be different. The very next sentence, terrorists as well as saints are the outcome of spiritual formation. Their spirits or hearts have been formed, period. Guess what? Nobody is exempt. Everyone gets spiritually formed. That's pretty heady stuff, but it's very true. The fact that somebody is spiritually malformed or disfigured doesn't mean they're not spiritually formed. It just means that God isn't the one who's primarily doing the forming. If we take the fall seriously, and as Christians we do take a look around at the world, and it's pretty self-evident, then we should expect this. 
Spiritual formation is for everyone. It's not for super-Christians. Paul's point in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, is one of spiritual formation. What does it mean to be formed in the image and likeness of Christ? Let me give you a little background on Romans. This is a very important book in Scripture. A lot of people have been influenced. Martin Luther, Reformation, was his reading of Romans that changed the way he thought. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, we get Paul's introduction. From verses 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, we get a picture of God's wrath. From 321 to 839, God's grace. Nine, chapters 9 to 11, God's plan. Now, people will give you different uh, outlines, but this is basically one that most people would agree on. And then chapter 12 through 15 is God's will. And if you look at the very first words in verse 1, and so, or in most translations, therefore, you find the hinge, basically, of this entire book. This is where Paul transitions from this was your sin and God's wrath and God's grace, God's mercy. This was God, what God has done because of us to this is the way you ought to live. So Romans 12, 1 and 2 form kind of the hinge of this entire book. This is the way Paul works. This is the way he writes. He's got a, a logical process that he works through. So Paul is introducing here at this hinge basically what it means to be formed as a, spirit, as a follower of Christ. The question is, of course, being a good pragmatist, how do we get there from here? So in verse 1, we see our job. I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. On the surface, it would seem, Paul is answering the question, how do we live? Actually, it's much more. We tend to think about rules. Give me a list of things that I need to do or don't. Task list. I mean, that's what Franklin Covey has made millions of dollars off of, is figuring out a better way to organize ourselves with our tasks. We think about rules, lists of things to do. If we do things right, it's going to be okay. But Paul leaves that behind. Instead, he presents a new way of being in the world, or at least new to us. And it was new to the Romans, too. You see, the Romans, the people that Paul was writing to, were culturally and philosophically Greeks. The Greek culture influenced their world, and so largely, they had a view of the world that said, body equals bad and spirit equals good. Not all of them, but that was the large, a large way that they looked at the world. So when Paul talks about present your bodies as a living sacrifice, it was completely antithetical to everything they had been taught. It was scandalous to them. Who cares about your body? It's your mind that, that matters. You can do with your body whatever you want. Paul's saying, no, that's not the point. You see, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. And that's very, very significant. Paul is Jewish. He's writing from a Jewish perspective about a way of being in the world that is distinctly and directly connected to this Jewish rabbi. It's not a Roman legal or philosophical or social system, even though Paul would appeal to all three of those throughout his ministry in one way or another. That's how he got to Rome, appealing to his legal status as a Roman citizen. 
But this Jewishness is found throughout most of, all of, Paul's thoughts and his writing. It's very much in play here. What did it mean to follow a rabbi? See, in the first century in Jewish culture, rabbis had a very special place. They didn't simply preach a philosophy of life. They didn't just say, okay, believe these things and it'll be okay. When Jesus speaks about my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, a yoke was literally what the rabbis called their interpretations, their way of being in the world in relating to God. A yoke was, the, was that set of instructions and life and living life that they had. So a yoke was more than just an agricultural metaphor. It was that, but it was more. See, Jewish kids went to school starting when they were about six. And they went for a certain period of time. And they studied the Torah with the rabbis. And by 10, they would generally have memorized the Torah. By 10. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Five books. By 10. If I look at my Bible, that's basically this much space. Now, it's kind of hard to see from there, but... That's 258 pages in my small Bible with small type. By 10. Have you read Leviticus? All of it. So when Jesus quotes the Torah, everybody knows what he's talking about. Everyone did. So by 10, the students kind of weed themselves out. The best students go on. And they go into this thing called Beit Talmud, which was basically meant the house of learning until about 14. Remember, Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem at the temple talking to the rabbis, they're amazed, was 12. This is what Jewish kids who went on to school, continued with school, did. They interacted with the rabbis. By 14, the students had memorized all of the Old Testament. That's a whole lot more. Fourteen. Memorize that. Oh, and they're working on oral tradition, the interpretations of the Old Testament as well. And at this point, the best of the best, they've weeded themselves out more, they apply to become Talmudim, or disciples. A disciple of a well-known rabbi. And the goal of the Talmudim is to be just like the rabbi. And I mean just like the rabbi. Not know what he knows, not agree to what he has to say, but be just like him. When a student applied to be a Talmudian for a rabbi, he would approach the rabbi. The rabbi would ask him a series of questions, lots of questions, tons of questions. You think finals are hard now? They've got nothing on what these kids went through at 14. And if the rabbi decided, okay, you can be what I am, he would say, come and follow me. Sound familiar? You see, if they're not accepted, they go back to the family business. They become carpenters or merchants or fishermen, maybe. They, the ones that go on leave their father and mother and go everywhere the rabbi went. Everywhere. 
By the way, if you want to find out a little bit more about first century rabbis, I did a lot of my research from Ray Vanderlaan and uh, Follow the Rabbi and in Velvet Elvis. And you, you've got to understand that what these kids did. All of this stuff that you're seeing here, this is what Jesus talked about. He says, come follow me to Peter and James and John and Andrew. They left everything. You see, generally, a rabbi began his public ministry teaching disciples at about age 30, which is about the time when we see Jesus. He chooses disciples, Talmudim, who are fishermen, kids who didn't make the cut. The rest of the rabbis said, no, you can't be what I am. No wonder these guys left their nets. Here's a rabbi they don't even have to apply to. Who comes to find them who says, follow me, and they think he's the Messiah. So of course they follow him. They literally presented their bodies as living sacrifices. That's what they were doing. See, our vision of Jesus is skewed. We think of him as this nice guy who will fix our problems. Somehow he's Swedish. He's got blonde hair and blue eyes and he's nice and... He wants to solve all our problems. And that's not the picture of the New Testament at all. Jesus was demanding. He demanded a living sacrifice. That's what rabbis did. We wonder why we don't change. We wonder why we don't have the life we see in the New Testament. But we're not really willing to give what it takes be truly spiritually formed most of the time. We aren't willing to give up ourselves to surrender, to be a living sacrifice. What did that mean, to be a living sacrifice? That's what Paul says. He says, present your bodies, let them be a living and holy sacrifice. You see, the problem with this is sacrifices don't live. By definition, they die. Jesus has basically abolished the sacrificial system. Animals don't cut it. You have to live and still be a sacrifice. We're following a person. We have to be like that person. You have to keep following that person. That's what Jewish disciples did. That's what Jesus commands us in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. Notice, Paul's not giving lists here of do this and don't do that. There's no magic bullet. There's no formula. Now, Paul does give instructions a little bit later. But you see things in verse 3, like, be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. Or in verse 6, in, in His grace, God has given us different gifts to do certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you, and it goes on, using your gifts... In verses 6 to 8, verse 9, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. In verse 10, work hard, serve the Lord enthusiastically. Verse 12, rejoice in our confident hope, be patient in trouble, and keep on praying. These are not tasks. This is not a list of things to check off. I've done these things. It's a way of living. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There are no magic bullets. It's much tougher than that. And even though we do have to be careful of the way we act, 
And the things that, and how we act is important. The things we do are important. They are not the ultimate point. They're not the beginning. Surrender is the beginning. Because you see, we tend to get this backwards. If we do the right things, then we'll be okay. But the point is that the heart has to be renovated first. We have to sacrifice ourselves, which means, as we look in verse in verse 2a here don't copy the behavior and customs of the world copy the rabbi's view of the world remember if we said earlier that we're always being spiritually formed already and we're not copying the world we have to be copying something we're going to be influenced by something the implication that Paul is saying here is that it's Christ we are to be formed by what he is Jesus His yoke, his take on the world was radically different than the other rabbis. Oh, doctrinally speaking, he was pretty close to the Pharisees of any Jewish sect out there. Doctrinally speaking, Jesus was the closest to the Pharisees, which is probably why he was constantly fighting with them. Because they got so much right and at the same time got so much wrong. For them, it was all about external conformity to the law and to all of their interpretations of the law, which were were significantly larger than the actual law itself. They thought it was their job to be righteous. Paul says, no, our job is to surrender. It's God's job to transform. And that's our problem. See, we're generally okay with making a commitment to Christ, whatever that means. But we don't like the idea of surrender because we like to have, think we're in control. We're not, but we like to think we are. If we ever want to get to that more than that we sense is out there, we've got to get over ourselves. If we stop at our job, surrender, then we're looking at a merely human spiritual formation. And that's why we fail. Always. That's why our resolutions don't fail, because they rely on us. And we are flawed. We are fallen human beings. So it's God's job to transform us. But how? Verse 2. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. See, God changes us by changing the way we think, by changing what we put into our minds. In contrast to the world around us, it's God's job to transform that. Here's the deal. You can't do it by yourself. You are not equipped for it. It's God's job. Why else would Paul himself, two chapters before, in chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, say, The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. I do what I hate. If Paul can't do it, and we know that large sections of the New Testament were written by him, then we better pay attention. God is the one who has to change us. Here's an example of what I mean. If you were to look at John chapter 4, verses 1 to 26, and I'm not going to read the whole thing right now, you find one of Jesus' last teachings in what is known as the Upper Room Discourse. I really hate that title because it makes it sound so formal. And it's not formal at all. 
This was Jesus' last time with his disciples. It's his last chance to teach, to fellowship with them. This is the, literally the rabbi's last instructions to his disciples. This was not a formal occasion. It was very intimate. And he's talking to them, and he's telling them about, well, he's telling them about home. He talks about the fact that he's going to the Father, that he and the Father are one. And he talks about mansions and preparing a place. And in all the middle of this thought, we often miss something if we're not careful. Verse 23 says this, All who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. Okay, obedience. Get that. But home. What we don't realize here is Jesus has turned something on its head. In the ancient Near East, home, the idea of who you are, was based on the land you lived in. The gods of those cultures were tied to the dirt, literally. So throughout the Old Testament, when... Yahweh confronts the Egyptian gods in Egypt or Dagon or Baal or Ashtra or any of these. He is confronting these gods on their own territory and saying, guess what? I'm bigger than you are. But Jesus here turns it, turns it on his head and says, home is not a place, it's a person. Home is Jesus Christ. Home is the Father. Home is God. That's a different way to think. And the disciples wouldn't have gotten that if they hadn't been with Jesus. If they hadn't have sacrificed themselves. And by the way, in verses 15 to 21 of John 14, Jesus talks about sending the Advocate, sending the Holy Spirit. Can't do it on your own. Paul is not saying anything in Romans 12, 1 and 2 that Jesus hasn't already said. Follow me. You can't do it on your own. I know it, so I'm sending you the Spirit. All of those resolutions, all of that more than that we want, it's simple. We want home. Home is what we're really looking for. True home really changes us. Because there we're accepted. There it really doesn't matter who we are, what we look like, whether we're popular or not, or whether we're totally screwed up, and guess what? We all are. We belong. God is home, and he loves us. And he's transforming us. Unless you think I'm stretching this home metaphor a little bit, think about the Old Testament, the entire sweep of biblical history. The signs are everywhere. All of history points in one direction, toward home, and that home is God. If you look at the recurring themes of the Old Testament, home is losing it, finding it, waiting for it, from Eden to the Exodus to the exile and beyond. There's some alliteration for you, too. Same story, just different characters. Home is God. But the problem is we keep trying to find it ourselves. That's what the ancient Israelites did. They kept trying to do it on their own. And they kept getting into trouble. God can only change our minds and our hearts when we're listening to him. Back to that rabbi idea. We can only be transformed when we're willing to surrender. Not to commit, because commitments are broken all the time. But to surrender. Surrender is different. Once you surrender, you're at someone else's mercy. They tell you where you go and when you go, what you do and what you don't do. So as I conclude, I have basically one question. 
You see, surrender is not safe. It's not easy. But who said Christianity is supposed to be safe? You see, we want that because it's part of the American dream. I want a bigger house. I want a nice car. I want my family to be perfect. I want, I want, I want. And that's not the point. It doesn't mean that that's because we want those things, that those are the right ways to look. It also doesn't mean they're inherently bad to want nice things. But that can't be our ultimate motivator. See, we want safe and instead we get boring. We want safe, but we're always unfulfilled. We're always looking for something more. Are we really surrendered to Christ? Please understand that this is not about an altar call. This is not about trying to scare people into making a commitment to Christ. And I'm sure that there may well be people in church here today who do need to know Christ. And to that person I say, I'm more than happy to speak with you or the elders would be afterwards. But this is really a challenge for people who are believers. That we live a truly surrendered life. That we allow God to do His job. Because God can't do His job if we are not willing to surrender. Because He's decided that that's not what He wants. Most Christians, I believe, never truly experience the life God has for us. And I'm convinced that's for two reasons. First, because we think it's about what we do, about who we are. But second, because our orientation towards life hasn't been transformed. We tack on Christianity to our lives. And so... Christian is, being a Christian is something we do on weekends. It's a set of beliefs we, we say we, we agree to, but it doesn't really change our life. I think that idea of transformation is often what scares us the most. See, because we're not really sure that we want to be the people that God wants us to be. After all, we have to give up a lot. We have to become a living sacrifice. And that's perfectly reasonable to think that. I mean, come on, we don't often admit we feel this way, not even to ourselves, but we do. We're not truly convinced that we can trust God with all of this. But the problem is we really don't know God well enough to make that call. See, we don't know because we don't know what he said to us. Is God safe? Of course not. That's not the point. One of my favorite pictures of this is from C.S. Lewis's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In a scene that was cut from the movie, and I was very, very annoyed with it. The Pevensey children are with the beavers at their lodge in their home in Narnia. And they're talking about taking the children to Oslin. And this is what happens. And this, to me, is a perfect picture of God. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Oslin a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of beasts is? Oslin is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. Thought he was a man. See, quite safe. Shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. 
That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Oslem without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. To me, that's a great picture of who Christ is, of who God is. Not safe, but good. And we don't give our lives to safe things, not wholeheartedly. See, the only way we can change our drive to the safe, to get beyond our fears, is by truly knowing Christ. The only way we can know Him is by spending time with Him. Again, not a list, not a magic bullet, not a 20-minute quiet time every day. It's not a set of rules, but it's know Him. Know the Word. I think it's no coincidence that the Apostle John calls Jesus the Word and Paul refers to the written Word of God. You can't follow rabbi only when you want to. It's an all or nothing deal. The beauty of it is that Jesus has already told us through his selection of disciples that we can be like him. Fishermen, tax collectors, political zealots, it doesn't matter who you are as the world defines it. It's who you know. And he will transform us. Know God, know Jesus. Know this book. That's my challenge. Spend time here. Maybe I've changed my mind a little bit about resolutions. There's one that would make a difference. You want a resolution that matters? Read this book. Every day. Even better, memorize it. Sounds tough. I know. But through it, we know God. Through it, the Spirit works. Through it, we follow the rabbi. See how life changes. You're going to experience the same things, the same problems, the same issues in life. None of that goes away. Jesus never promises that. But I guarantee you, when you truly know God, when you actually know Him, your perspective will change. And that is the beginning of a spiritual formation that is not merely human. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that when you chose those to follow you, you didn't choose the cream of the crop. You chose people like the rest of us. And I pray that we would remember that and we would know that and that you would give us your grace and transform our hearts and minds. Amen.